Good morning, everybody, and welcome to From the Deep End. Uh, of course, my name's Jonathan Jenkins. It is Jenkins. It is good to be with you here on this May 25th, and we are looking forward to uh, another good program today, uh, another good time uh, considering things about the Bible together. Um, and as we typically do in this program, what we are going to do today is we are going to uh, uh, address your um, um Bible questions or any Bible-related topic that you may have. That's what we do in the first hour. Uh, you direct the course of the uh, program, and so whatever is on your mind will shortly uh, be on my mind. And so uh, if you have them, go ahead and start putting those in there. We'll try to get to those in just a minute or two. Um, keep in mind that we are uh, now continuing to stream uh, both from the deep end and the Connect meeting at night. Uh, across Podbean. So if you'd rather have a, an audio feed, uh, you can, um, uh, perhaps you're at work or going to work and you'd still like to listen to it live and you want to put in a headset or something of that nature, you can now do that over on our Podbean channel, which is digitalbiblestudy.podbean.com. Uh, and um, the, the comments that are made here, you will not be able to see uh, because you'll be on a different platform. Uh, but through the app or your browser, if you're on a uh, desk, desktop or laptop, uh, I'll still be able to see any comment that you put in. So if you have a comment or question over there, you can still drop that in as well. Uh, just another way of accessing the material here. Um, and usually about 30 minutes or so after the um, uh, session is over, it uh, the uh, uh, live broadcast, live web stream of the uh, show is then added as a podcast episode, which is then available pretty much everywhere where podcasts are uh, able to be found. So i uh, just try to keep reminding you all of that because that is a feature we played around with oh, about a year ago. And frankly, I just forgot about doing it. Uh, There's no no reason to, to uh, not be doing it other than it just kind of slipped my mind that that was something we had been playing around with. And I thought it might be a good idea just to get back to doing it. So uh, hopefully now it will be a uh, recurring feature here on digital Bible study. And so if you're interested in having an audio version of the show, it is available on Podbean. Uh, yes, Christine, Podbean and the Podbean app, which is available both for um, uh, Android and for Apple. It's in the Play Store and the App Store for, these, for those respective platforms. Or you can just access it right through a web browser uh, on a laptop or pretretty much any, any way you want to. Um, and it's available. So just wanted to give you that heads up if you're interested in it. Uh, obviously tonight we won't be on for Connect. It's Wednesday night and we stay try to stay clear of the Wednesday night time. Um, and then tomorrow uh, I will be gone. We will be, uh, I'll take Julie up to the Mayo Clinic. So From the Deep End will not be on tomorrow. And also From the Deep End will not air Monday because it is Memorial Day. So after today, it's going to be a minute, but after today, uh, it is going to be Tuesday uh, before uh, we are able to be back uh, together on this particular program. So just keep that in mind. Um, on Thursday night, uh, we have uh, Greg Dismuke with us on Connect. And then Friday night, uh, we have Sean Evans with us at the 7 o'clock hour. Um, and both of those men always do a great job for us, as do most of our speakers. Uh, but we're looking forward to having both of them with us in the evening. So let's turn our attention to um, uh, the uh, comment section, see what y'all have going for you tonight, um, or th this morning rather, and see where we where we stand. Um, um, let me go back up through here. 
Jonathan with the first question of the day. Well, the report concerning the Southern Baptist Convention recently, um, how can the church help victims of abuse? Um, and I don't know if um, how many people in our audience will be familiar with that um, report that came out. Um, it, it broke first of this week, end of last week. I can't remember exactly when it came out, but there have been allegations of um, uh, sexual abuse, sexual misconduct, and other things inside the Southern Baptist um, Convention for some years. Um, there was an extensive investigation done on it, and they issued their conclusions of them. I have not read the report yet. It is not not a short report. Um, I've been following some of the you know the the hot takes from it and the initial reporting from it on, on Twitter and some other places. Um, so I'm passingly familiar with it, um, and but my my information is not firsthand in, in that I have not actually read the report. But from everything I have heard, uh, it it is to say it as non-inflammatory as I can. Let's just say it it's not a good look for the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, it appears that their primary concern in the face of a lot of these allegations was to um, um, uh, find a way not to hurt the Southern Baptist Convention more so than to deal with the um, um, the um, the actual uh, the, the actual allegations of the abuse and then also the victims of the abuse. And apparently, if I understood the conclusion that people draw drew from it properly, um, uh, even those who were accused of of this misconduct were allowed to continue to uh, well in their in their parlance continue to pastor or lead. Uh, different churches in in the uh, Southern Baptist Convention with no real ramifications or investigations fully of the uh, of the complaints. So that's the um, that's the, that's that's the short take on it. And again, I haven't read it, so I can't speak with any authority on it. You know, my new source is Twitter, so <laughs> take that for what it's worth. Uh, sometimes you don't always um, always um, um, get the best take when you, when you're looking through Twitter, when you're looking through a Twitter feed. Uh, but, but that, that's what I've been hearing. And the, the response, <clears throat> excuse me, the response has been pretty consistent. It's not like I've seen a great argument going on or people saying, Oh no, 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 that's not true. Um, uh, it seems to be a pretty, pretty consistent response. And I, you know, I don't know anything about the, um, the agency that did the investigation. It was, it, um, was it legit? Was it even handed? Did it deal with all both sides of the evidence and 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 taken you know all the different points of views, or was it you know more like one of these sometimes these documentaries you see on TV that are trying to convince you of a particular point, particular viewpoint? I, I don't know that either, so I'm not going to sit here and act like I know everything about what was going on over there because I don't. Um, and you know the it could be 100 percent true. Uh, it could be understating things. That's also possible. Uh, it could also be the case that there is somebody who has an axe to grind with the current leadership of the Southern Baptist Convention and is putting the worst possible spin upon things. Um, so I'm, I'm open. My mind is open to all of those possibilities. I've gotten cynical enough in this current climate that uh, pretty much anytime I see a report or an investigation or a study or anything, I'm like, I don't believe it until you show me something more. I don't I, I'm. I'm just not going to believe it. Um, 
So, uh, but having said all that, uh, let's just work on the premise that that it is a it is a um, an accurate report, and you know, let's just go from there. Let's just say that the things that are being said about it are, are accurate reporting, and there was a a recurring um, uh, sexual problem inside of um, inside of the uh, the leadership of the Southern Baptist Convention and in some of the churches. Um, of that or that organization of that denomination. So to your question then, Jonathan, um, how can the church help victims of sexual abuse? Um, this is again uh, one blessing of the plan of God in terms of the organization of churches. Um, there is no hierarchy of churches. Um, there is no hierarchy of bureaucratic administration. Um, the whole idea of there being a organizational convention that keeps your denomination together and everybody in line um, uh, is not it is not a biblical concept. Um, I'm going to guess the upper levels of the uh, um, leadership of the Southern Baptist Convention, Jonathan. I'm going to guess they cash a bigger paycheck at the end of every week than you do. There is a lot of power to be at the top levels of the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, I, at one time, I believe the Southern Baptists were the largest, quote-unquote, denomination inside the United States. I think that may still be the case. Obviously, you got to throw out, not throw out the Catholic Church, because when we talk about denominations, that's usually a separate category, but it's outside of the Catholic Church. I think the Southern Baptist was and might still be the largest. Uh, I want to say it's, somebody will check me on this, but I I want to say it's 14, 15 million people, something of that nature. Um, and, you know, evangelical, quote unquote, evangelical Christians, when they when it comes to voting, are usually considered to be about a block of about 30 million. So the, the Southern Baptists make up a large portion of that block. Um, and so there is a lot at stake to that. And so you have a lot of motivation then to protect the organization, particularly the organization that is perhaps under your leadership. Um, and it's real easy to allow that that sense of protecting the organization to slip in. Well, we don't have that. At least we shouldn't. Uh, there are some parachurch, or, parachurch organizations and such that, that do have some, some prominence among us, and we are not completely free um, from having... Um, um, uh, sexual abuse allegations inside churches of Christ in, well, by individual preachers and um, by um, uh, heads of some of our larger um, parachurch type organizations. Um, I'm not going to bring up any names here, but um, there was one about 10 years ago, one of the most prominent uh, organizations affiliated uh, with Churches of Christ, one of the most prominent and one of the most trusted. Uh, one of its leaders had uh, uh, a run-in um, with um, some reports of of, of sexual misconduct um, with um, with with teenagers, uh, and that had to be dealt with. Unfortunately, it was uh, at, at least from an organizational standpoint. I don't think there was ever any criminal things. I don't know that ever rose to any criminality, but it was certainly um, something that needed to be addressed. Uh, it was addressed quietly. That's why I'm not mentioning any names, but it was addressed. So, um, it, but 
So it happens. But the bigger the organization gets, the more likely it's going to be that you're going to have that problem. That just makes common sense. And so that's where it starts, congregation autonomy. Uh, it's harder to get away with that stuff inside of a self-governing congregation. So just from a practical standpoint, congregation autonomy helps here a lot. Um, how else do you, do you deal with it? Well, uh, if you're going to help, the, if your question is about how can you help the victims of abuse, well, first of all, you could help them by preventing it, but that's not actually your question. Obviously, it needs to be prevented, and that, that starts with individual responsibility. Um, people actually have to believe this thing that we're doing. People actually have to uh, um, <clears throat> um, personalize uh, Christianity and leadership of congregations if they suspect that's not the case of an elder or of a preacher or even a deacon need to take measures to uh, to um, um, correct the situation. Maybe removing staff or whatever, it needs to be done. Uh, and there are lots of things that need to be done in, in the hiring of stuff. The, uh, the church round was at Katie, ran back, background checks on anybody that had anything to do with any of the children. Because people move into Houston, you don't know where they're from. They tell you stories, right or not. Uh, we ran background checks on everybody. Uh, elders when they got put in as elders, deacons when they got put in as deacons. Uh, every every person that ever got on staff was put on a back, background check. Anybody that ever stepped foot in a classroom, full background check was running on it. We had a, a former police officer who, who who did that for us, and that's one way. Uh, that's a bare minimum of things that need to be done. Um, and then, obviously, there needs to be a lot of care and consideration about um, how um, in interaction takes place. Uh, you know, um, you, you you need to try not to have your, your preacher meeting alone in the office with the, the ladies of the congregation. Try not to allow that to happen if you can. And that's certainly that's a lot of personal responsibility on the preacher. Um, if you were a, a lady and you came in my office, um, well, at, at Avondale, I didn't have any I didn't have any blinds and I didn't have a window on the door. So the door stayed open. Uh, which if you, were, if you were in my office, the door stayed open. Um, at, at When I was at Katie, I had some windows and I had some blinds. So at least then I could close the door, but the blinds were wide open when you were in the office every time. Uh, there, was, there, was, there was not going to be that level of privacy with you in my office. And that's just the case. That's just what it was going to be. Um, but the, 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 the guys on staff or leadership of the church that are going to be doing this probably are going to try and find some secrecy. And so then it comes down to actually preventing it. And um, there might need to be some policies in place, depending on the church and so on that you're with. Um, but, um, you know, just, just some common sense precautions about letting um, <clears throat> people of the uh, people be in uh, alone um, with, with, with others. And sometimes it's not even enough just to say, you know, uh, your youth minister shouldn't be alone with uh, uh, the teens of the of the youth program. Although that's true, uh, these days those gender lines are not as hard and set, hard and fast as they used to be. Um, so, even some of those old precautions may not may may not um, um, solve the situation either. So, th there are a lot of things that need to be done, and and it needs to be a, a conversation. Uh, this really does need to be a conversation in churches. Leadership needs to, to stop and at least at some point have had 
have had these thoughts so just so that you don't get surprised by it. Now, when it comes to actually helping the victims, let's say it's already happened. Well, let's start with the abuser because one way you're going to help the victim is to see that, you know, justice is being done to the abuser. Um, the church, if, if it is an actual case of abuse, if this, if there's, if there's, this is not just a, a personality conflict or some kind of misunderstanding or something of that nature. The accusation here is actually, or actually rises to the level of criminality. You can't keep it in house. It's going to hurt the church. It's going to do all kinds of things, but you have to get law enforcement involved. If the, if it is a, if it is suspected criminality, the church can no longer protect you. All right. You've, you've got, you, you've got to go through the process. Uh, and hopefully you'll get a fair, you know, whoever the the accused abuser abuser is, will get a fair uh, uh, re- trial and representation if need be. Um, but it, you cannot, this is not something that can be handled inside the governance of the church. And so that thought of, well, if we, if we take it to law enforcement, it's going to hurt the church, let's handle it in-house, is where all of this corruption comes from. It has to be dealt with, and whatever consequences come to the church are, uh, are, are come to it. So. Uh, the, the, the church is not a police unit. And just because we're brethren, it doesn't stop a criminal offense from being a criminal offense. So that that's one place you start. Um, and then once it obviously once it does happen, uh, how do you help? The, <coughs> how do you help the, the victim of abuse? Well, um, short answer, so I don't go all hour on it. The short answer is live by the gospel. Okay. The the what's going to help this person that is suffered under the hands of, of sexual abuse is for this person to see that what has happened here is not because of the gospel, but it is a violation of it. And further, that when the gospel is properly applied, people that have been in that kind of a situation that have been abused like that are not ostracized. They're not shamed. They're not guilted. Uh, you know, that, 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 that there is a support system in place because of the gospel, the worst possible outcome of an event like this is 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 the the the, the person that is abused um, somehow ends up thinking that there is some kind of uh, uh, innate perversion inside of leaders of, of of the Christian faith. If you go on social media, you'll find that all over the place. Um, the presumption that that preachers, or if you're a Catholic or something, priest or something of that, or are uh, you know, given over to um, some forms of sexual deviancy, uh, and that that's that's a horrible outcome from it uh, because it's not. First of all, it's not true. Uh, the vast majority of, of of men who serve in those positions are doing it because um, of the um, of the desire to help and to serve others. Uh, now, I think sometimes people get caught up in that stuff. I think those two things go together. I don't know that a lot of these, a lot of these guys that end up in those situations actually intend to start that way. Um, I know there, there, there have a lot of, a lot of affairs have happened between preachers and, and, and women of the church just because they're in, in a, in an intimate discussion, you're, you're dealing with personal problems and you're, you're opening your heart back and forth to each other. And it's, it's not a long drive from that point to the point where you're starting to engage in inappropriate conduct. So I think sometimes this thing spirals out of control more quickly than others. Although there are times 
I think the time I referenced earlier about one of our organizations about a decade ago, um, I believe there were some, what would that be, psychological needs there, that this was, this was an addiction for that person. Um, and that it was not, it wasn't, I just got caught up in the moment that that was a person that needed to be separated from the work that he was doing uh, because he had, he, he, he was deeply struggling with a, a, a psychological problem that needed to be, needed to be addressed. So, um, I mean, a lot of it's going to be congregation to congregation and, and I, that's best I've got right now off the top of my head, Jonathan, uh, put the, put the proper precautions in on the front side, do the best you can to find out who the people are that are in contact with, with, you know, the different groups that this might, might be susceptible to this. And then if, if, and when it happens, stand up to it, own it. If it needs to be dealt with in a criminal matter, let it be dealt, let that process play out in the court system. Let, let's, let's suck it up and deal, deal with it. And then in a, in a godly way, uh, support the person who has been abused uh, and try not to let their, let, try not to let them um, have their faith soured if that's a potential outcome of this. Okay, so uh, that's where I'd go. It's a horrible, <clears throat> horrible thing that we have to have this conversation these days, but um, it's not one that's going away. It's it's not the it's not one that we're going to have uh, less of in the days the days ahead. All right, so not, it's not like our world is getting better, and it has an impact on it has an impact on those in ministry, and sometimes you're going to have to deal with it. But um, let's make sure that we are actually uh, actually dealing with it. All right. Um, next question we have here in the uh, comment section. Let's see what we have. Um, um, doo -doo 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 -doo. um oh, another one from Jonathan. I'll take that. Uh, we can double up on that problem. Jonathan, not a problem in the world. Um, did the father turn his face away as the hymn, how deep the father's loves mentions? Um, that is a common thought among people. Um, about the crucifixion of Jesus. Usually the, the connection goes something along these lines. Um, people will take the thought that Jesus became sin for us uh, on the cross. And so at the moment that he was bearing our sins, um, he became sin. And so therefore, since other verses suggest that God cannot countenance sin, cannot be in the presence of sin, and then people, I think, use that language very loosely because the verses they appeal to don't actually say that directly but that's the common line that that the um G because jesus became sin the father was looking at, on him or could not look upon him and so he turned away his face in the moment that jesus was bearing his sin or our sin rather excuse me um and that that's the common line and that's the that's the the language that is in that hymn um the problem I have with it is, is actually there's 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 a couple couple things I have and I take issue with it over this point um, is that I can't find a verse in the text that actually says that God turned His face away from Jesus. That that would be the foundational problem I have is I can't find the verse that says it. Uh, I, I would if if you know where one is, let me know. But I don't know where one is that, that does that. Okay. Um, I have another problem, but I have a deeper problem with it, uh, and it's the suggestion of what was going on when we purportedly believe that um, God turned his face away from 
from Jesus. Normally that is attached to the moment that Jesus cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As I have heard it argued, what happens is in that moment is when the sin of all humanity comes upon Jesus. God again cannot look upon sin, uh, we're told, and he turns his face away because at that moment Jesus is bearing our sins. Okay, fine. But that's not the last thing that Jesus says to the Father. <clears throat> the last thing the Father says, into your hands do I commend my spirit, and then at the end it is finished. Um, so what you're telling me is, when Jesus goes to the cross, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. They're in fellowship, and, and the Father is looking upon Jesus. At the end, when he says, into your hands, I commend my spirit, obviously he believes the Father is listening and are ready to receive the spirit. So at the end of the cross, they're back in fellowship. It's in that moment that God has forsaken Jesus that they're not in fellowship, that there's separation. Because what I'm told is death means separation and the death that Jesus suffered on the cross it, they paid the wages of our sins, and the wages of our sins is a spiritual death. So Jesus was separated from the Father on the cross during that moment. And as I heard one, one man trying to argue this point, um, he said, since Jesus is infinite, and, and then he went to that passage that Peter wrote, the, 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 a day with the Lord is as a thousand years, thousand years as a day, Jesus could experience in a moment an eternity of separation from the Father, and so, therefore, in that moment, suffer or experience the eternity of separation that we all deserve. Okay, that's just logical nonsense. That makes no sense whatsoever. But that was that was the that was the statement that he made. It sounded real nice. I'm sure when he wrote it down in his sermon outline, it sounded really really nice. It's a hot mess of thinking that there's 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 no stability in that thought whatsoever. I'm sorry, there's just not. Okay, so that that's what we're told. My bigger problem is not that philosophical nonsense about deity experiencing eternity in an instant, which why, why it's nonsense is if he's outside of that, 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 you have two time statements and you're trying to nullify one time statement with the other. You have eternity in an instant. So which one is it? Is, is, is an instant? That just makes no sense. Anyway, um, that's not actually my problem. My problem is this, and I think I've said this before in response to another question that somebody asked several weeks ago at this point. If the death that Jesus is suffering on the cross is a spiritual death and Jesus actually died spiritually on the cross, because that goes along with it, he's separated from the Father and he dies spiritually to suffer the spiritual death that we need to suffer, our separation from the Father. If he does that and then Later, while still on the cross, his fellowship with God is restored. Has he not then been resurrected from a spiritual death? Because he was dead, separ separated from God, and so de therefore dead spiritually. A few minutes later, he's apparently risen from that spiritual death and back in connection, back in harmony with the Father. Okay? Fine, let's just say that happens. So he's, he's spiritually alive when he gets to the cross. 
The father forsakes him, turns his face away. He dies spiritually because he's separated from the father hanging on the cross. Before he passes physically, before he die, his body dies, he is restored to a fellowship with God so that the father is ready to receive his spirit. This is the question I've had. I've never had anybody answer this question for me. I've asked it to several, never had anybody respond to me with, a, with an answer. My question is this. If once he has died spiritually on the cross and then has been resurrected spiritually on the cross, which is the only way I know to construct that, that scenario, why does he have to die physically? Why could he not simply come down out of the cross? He has already suffered the penalty of our sin and been restored to fellowship with God. He has already died and been resurrected there on the cross. At that point, it's all done. At that point, why can't he just come down off the cross? Why do we need a bodily resurrection if, our, if, if the resurrection that we really need is from spiritual death? See, this is an 80-70 problem too. The bodily death of Jesus demands a bodily resurrection. And if it's a bodily death and a bodily resurrection, the wages of sin cannot be spiritual death because bodily death and bodily resurrection has nothing to do with spiritual death. The fact that he has to die spiritual death, he has to die on the cross and actually be buried in the ground means that the death that we're talking about here is a physical death. That's what it's talking about. Okay, I say all that to say this, to get back to your question. If what Jesus is suffering on the cross is a spot is a bodily death that is going to result with him being with his being in paradise at the end. You might want to reconsider your thoughts about my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, Psalm twenty two is the where that is quoted from, and if you read the full salt, the full thought of Psalm twenty two, what you'll see is by the time David gets about halfway through that psalm. His cry of, why have you forsaken me, is transformed in, you have heard me. You have delivered me. By the time you get to the end of the psalm, David, is, David has repudiated his own argument. David felt as if he had been rejected, forsaken, at the beginning of Psalm 22. In fact, we probably should put that up on the screen real quick so I can show it to you. Um Wrong windows open. Give me a second here. Where is my Bible program? Where is my Bible program? There it is. All right, here we go. Let's turn over to Psalm 22 real fast. Take a look at it. Right, Jesus is not making up a, a statement on his own. He's he's um, quoting the Bible. He's quoting David. When, David. when he is on the cross, he has quoted David. Psalm 22, verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Okay, I cried by thy day, you do not answer. You're holy, you're enthroned on the praises of Israel's and in Israel, and start noticing the comparison here in verse four. Our fathers trusted you uh, and you delivered them. They cried to you and they were rescued. Really? That is that is that simple, David? Not 40 years wandering in the wilderness, not 400 years in Egyptian uh, Egyptian servitude. They just cried and you and he answered immediately. You see what see what David is doing? He's in despair. And whenever you're in despair, you look at everybody else's life and see how much better their lives are. So he glorifies the, the past. They cried and you answered. Well, after 400 years, he answered. After 40 years, he answered. 
okay, during all the oppressions of the judges, varying lengths of time, but decades sometimes before God answered. So David, you're glorifying the past, and then notice what he says: when you're in that when you're in that condition, you 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 exaggerate the state of your own condition. I'm just a worm, not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by people, all who see mock me, and so on. He trusts in the Lord; let him deliver him. Okay. Which is very the very thing they said to Jesus on the cross, that kind of mentality. Let's see who. Let's see if he'll save him. Let's see if he'll listen to him. Right? Okay. He says, "Many many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. Dogs encompass me." We're down in verse sixteen now. Company of evil doers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. Okay, um, verse 19, but you, O Lord, do not be far off. You owe you my help. Come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword. Thought he had forsaken him. Set you Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. So by the end of the psalm, God is delivering David. And David is now praising God. I will tell uh, tell your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation while I sing praise to you. Hebrews 2.12. Read the whole psalm and notice the other verses in the psalm that are then applied into the New Testament. That's all Jesus is doing. He is quoting the plea of humanity where humanity feels as if he has it, it is forsaken and estranged from God when in reality... It's not. God did not forsake Jesus on the cross. He just didn't. Even the verse that Jesus quotes does not affirm that God forsakes the righteous. Jesus does not die as a sinner on the cross. He does not die spiritually on the cross at any point whatsoever. Jesus never died spiritually. He laid down his life. He laid down his body that he might take it up again. And if Jesus never died spiritually because he did not become a sinner, he became a sin offering. The, 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 the lamb that is offered for the sin offering is pure without spot or without blemish. That's Jesus. He's pure without spot, without blemish. He is righteous. And God never forsakes the righteous. Never. Now, to the question, did God turn his face away? I can't find the verse that says he didn't, but I can, or that, that he did rather, but I can surely find the verse that says, or at least implies, that he did not turn his face away. Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, where's the verse that I want? Um... Um, there it is. Where, where is his offering? There it is. I need the King James rendering of it. I'm sorry. I need the King James rendering of it because it, it's reading wrong in the ESV. I told you, don't ever change your version. Um, the spirit of God, my bruise, my stress, my peace, my body, my were healed, turned it away, brought his lamb to the side. He was taken from prison. Where is the verse I'm looking for? Um, 
There it is, verse 11. I was I was too early in the chapter. I, maybe that's what my problem was. I was trying to find it up in verse 7 or 8. It's not there, okay? Verse 10, let's start in verse 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He, put, he hath put, <clears throat> put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, which, which we're just talking about, uh, he shall see his seed and shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prevail in his hand. He shall see, verse 11, he shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. He shall see the travail of his soul. Hard to see something when you turn your face away from it. Hard to see something you're not looking at. When the travail of the soul of Jesus, and maybe that travail of the soul might be right about the time he cried out, oh, I don't know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He shall see that travail. The anguish of his soul, he shall see it. His eyes are not turned away from him. There is not a verse in scripture that I can find that says that God ever turned his face away from Jesus. Not one. So, to your question, Jonathan, what about that hymn? I've sung it before, and every time I sing it, I have this thought that you're having because I don't, I don't agree with the actual message of the, uh, of the. Um, the literal words. But here again, what what is your tolerance for poetic license? I mean, it, it's a great image, right? It's poignant in the song. Does it actually teach false doctrine? Eh, probably not. I don't I don't it's not how I would have worded it. Okay. Um I see I, I just it's not how I would word it. Uh, is it is it does it rise to the level where I'm going to tell other people that they shouldn't sing it? Is it does it even rise to the level that I'll refuse to sing it? Not really. It's cer certainly not for others. Um, you know, uh, it, it, particularly particularly Johnson. I know you're a preacher and you're in local work. Man, you got to choose the hills you die on. You got you've got. Is this is this something you're going to go go to the deck for? I wouldn't. Uh, just just sing along and and if and if it bothers you that much, just. When you're singing that portion of the song, just stop singing for a second. Let those words pass by and then pick up the rest of the song because the rest of the song is beautiful. It's a very poignant song. That's why people love it. Um, so, uh, you know, that, that's how I deal with it. It's just not it's not something that I just I'm, I'm going to expend my, you know, it, it, well, in the secular world, we call it political capital. I'm not going to whatever political capital I have inside the church as the preacher, I'm not going to expend any of it on that. It's just that there are other things. I guarantee you there's something else going on in the congregation where you're preaching that needs to be addressed that's a much more serious matter. And I'm going to wait until that matter comes along before, um, you know, I start trying to force my, well, I say force, to, uh, to, uh, to get my point of view on the matter um, rise to prominence. However you want to say that. I'm struggling for the right way to say that. That doesn't sound like the preacher's being a bully because you shouldn't be a bully. Clean that. What I just said, clean that up a little bit, and and that's the way that you uh, that I would start to deal with it. Anyway, let's see what we've got. Um, well, way back when, Christine asked my, asked about my mom and dad. Uh, have a good trip. I don't know. I haven't talked to him. I sent him a message last night. Told him he could be on the program this morning since we're not going to be on tomorrow. But it was late before I sent it, and he did not respond back to me because I got it done late. So anyway, um, Christine says there are more, more than forty four women in that report, and that's that's um, yeah, that's about right. 
Uh, Deborah's probably got a good point there. Going back to our first question, we need to wait a few weeks for the sensationalism to die down and the truth to start coming out. That's probably not a bad idea. Um, you know, and that that goes along with a lot of stuff. Um, you know, it was again being on social media last night after the horrible, horrific shooting in Texas. I mean, the, the the shootings are bad enough, but the way we as a country respond to them where people just start you know, within 80 seconds of hearing about a report, the predictable lines of, of, of stuff pop up. Um, you know, th those are probably conversations we need to have, but can we not wait until at least the sun comes up the next day before we start? Can, can we not? Uh, but anyway, um, Teresa says, going back to our first topic, I believe all the church can do is pray. And if the opportunity presents itself to us, uh, do what's needed. Um, prayer is certainly a good place to start with it. Um, I will say, Teresa, I, I, I think I said that in the, um, in the, in the opening of it, we do need to get out in front of it. We do need to, we need, we need to try as churches to be preventative about it. I think we have had a, um, a, a, that can never happen here mentality a lot. Uh, and I, I'll tell you this, my, um, the first work I ever had central Academy in Batesville, Mississippi, um, can't remember the guy's name. His first name was Paul. But I started preaching there in 93. Okay. Um, so this is pre-internet, essentially. I mean, the, the internet was there. You could call and log log into things, but this was there was there was no social media back then. This is this is local bulletin boards and chat rooms, that kind of stuff type internet. Um the reason he lost his work at Central Academy is because he got arrested. I tell you the location, it was in Batesville, Mississippi. Um, he got arrested in Jacksonville, Florida. I think that's correct. I think it was Jacksonville, uh, which is a long way from Batesville, Mississippi. You can't get there in a minute. It, it's, it's, it's a full day's drive from Batesville to Jacksonville. At least, what, six, seven hours, I guess. Um, he was in Jacksonville at a hotel thinking he was meeting a young lady, and by young, I mean young. Turns out the young lady was a police officer. And he got arrested. And strangely enough, lost his work. Yeah, yeah. That's a real good choice on my part to go into that congregation after that. No, it was actually, they, they were good people. Uh, it, did, it did hurt the reputation of the church in the community, and that was something that had to be dealt with a little bit. But um, so that idea that it can't happen here, no, it can. It it absolutely can happen here, and so uh, we need to we need to be proactive and get out and get out in front of it as best uh, as best we can. Uh, see other people talking about the background checks that I mentioned, and that we should do that as well. Um, uh, Trish says, "Rule of thumb: never being alone or in a car with the opposite sex without a chaperone or a third or fourth party, uh, particularly if you're in ministry." Uh, I mean, that applies to a lot of people as well. But given with it, with the context of our discussion this morning, uh, if if you're in ministry, uh, you've got to protect yourself because it, 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 you don't even have to do it. Just the accusation that you've done, it's going to follow you around. Uh, I think I may have told this story um, uh, before, uh, but I'll tell it again because it's fitting. And, and it was my dad told it to me um, uh, when I first started preaching to make this point. And it's about my uncle Jerry, if I remember correctly. Um, he got a call one night from a lady that he'd been counseling. 
and this was, you know, after bedtime, it was late. And uh, she was just distraught and just really wanted him to come over and, and talk to her. Well, his radar went off a little bit. And so before he went over there, he called one of the elders where he was preaching and said, hey, would you come along with me? Um, good thing he did. Good thing he did. Because when she opened the door, she was not wearing a stitch of clothing. She was buck naked. And to her surprise, Uncle Jerry was not alone. <laughs> so uh, thinking ahead, making plans, actually believing that, yes, that can happen. Uh, and, and Jonathan, as, as a young preacher, let me, let me, I know you didn't ask this question to make this comment, but I know you're out there. And there may, be, there may be other young preachers out there as well. Um, do not think for a moment that there are not some people out there, some, some, some women out there, um, who would take pleasure in taking you down. Um, you know, they, 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 they see you as a challenge. And I don't know if you're married yet or not, Jonathan, but uh, be careful. Do not assume that every good sister you come across in that church is a good sister. Now, don't get cynical. Don't get that way. But just keep it in your mind that it is at least within the realm of possibility that the reason she wants to see me is not on the up and up. Uh, it, it is at least it is at least possible. Okay. Um, Jonathan says, I'm thinking about installing a camera in my office as an added measure, too. Uh, it, that, if you want to do that, Jonathan, that's fine. I, just from my personal, from my personal preference, um, I don't want that tied into the church security feed. I want, I want control of that camera. Um, cause you, you, you never know who's going to, how it could come back and bite you. Um, it doesn't, you know, you never know. Um, so I, I'm, it, it, I, let me put it this way. I, I would not, if, um, if, um, I, I would have a real problem with the church putting a camera in my office against my against my uh, um, um, against my wishes. I, I'd, I'd have a real problem with that. Uh, just there, there, there are enough people out there who have a, a bad opinion of preachers, and that you don't work enough, and that you're whatever it is. That if if they have the ability to 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 turn on that camera and to view what you're doing in your office and how what your hours are like and what you're doing while you're in the office and they'll all, they'll have the, and they'll find a way to use it against you if they want to. So if you want to put it in on your, in by yourself and have it in there, I'd say that's more than, more than, more than welcome. Um, you may want to check, and this is, I'm not a legal expert here by any means, uh, but you may want to check the legality of that and, and whether you have a, a one consent or a one party consent or two party consent to being videoed in your state. I know that that differs in different locations. So if you're going to do that, um, you may want to do it, uh, may want to check that out. I would also, if you're in, in a counseling session, um, that might make somebody uncomfortable in terms of knowing their, their, the actual video of their, of their sessions are being recorded. So um, there might be some benefit to it, but you've you got some hoops and some things you're going to have to consider, ho hoops you got to jump through some things you need to consider both ethically and legally before you do it. But the one thing I know I wouldn't do is let somebody else put the camera in my office. Uh, because, well, you know, I talked about just what you're doing in your office personally, but then you've got the, you've got the same problem if there's a camera in your office and you are doing counseling 
and that couple starts mentioning any things that are going on in their home. And that, that file is being recorded on a server, you know, a remote server somewhere that you don't have access to. The moment you don't have access to it, um, you can't, um, you can't control the, who has access to that file. So uh, there's, there's some real, I think there's some pretty strong concerns there, but, um, you know, it would be, it would be a way to stop, uh, any kind of accusation going on, but it's not without its, uh, due consideration that you need to think, think that through for a minute. Um, let's see what else we have. Mark 8, 22 to 26. What should be made? This comes from Travis. What should be made of Jesus healing in regard to him employing a fine tuning of the blind man rather than healing in one in one shot? Uh, that's a good question, Travis. Uh, not one that I know that I have a great answer for immediately. Um, I have seen guys try to let me get the screen share back up. Um, I've seen commentators. Uh, well, let's let's read the account just in case people don't know what we're talking about. He comes to Bethsaida. They bring a blind man to him and besought him to touch him. Uh, he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town. And when he spat on his eyes, he puts hands upon him, asking if he saw aught. I'm in the King James again. I just realized that. <laughs> and he looked up and he said, I see men as trees walking. And after that, he put his hands again upon his eyes and made him uh, to look up. And he was restored and he saw every man clearly. They sent him away to his house um, and neither go into, into the town nor tell it to anyone in the town and so on. Uh, I have seen guys try to spiritualize this and say that that is a um, um, a, a, a statement to uh, the progressive sanctification that they believe in, uh, which is a, probably another topic for another day. Uh, and so they try to spiritualize it and so on. I I don't know that I've got a great answer. You know, I I, it, I, I you know I, I, I don't think I've got a great answer. I don't think that's it. I don't think this is a spiritualized thing. Um, I. You know how I say I reserve the right to say I don't know? I'm going to say I don't know on this one. Um, I, I don't know the specific reasons for it. Um, maybe it is it is something of a, a matter of faith. Maybe it's a, in the man. Maybe, uh, you know, uh, maybe it's just a matter of Jesus showing the control that he has over all these things. Um, I don't know. I mean, why, why spit on his eyes to, to start with? Why, why is that necessary? Jesus could snap his fingers and, and the, man, the man would be perfectly uh, uh, um, seen perfectly. So there may be a good answer out there. I just, I just don't know it. How about that? Uh, and I'm not spending any more time here telling you, I don't know, cause I could talk for another five minutes on it. And my answer would still be, I don't know. Um, so uh, if you've got any thoughts, I'd be glad to consider your thoughts on the matter. Cause I just don't, I don't really have, I, I've never had an aha moment where I thought, okay, I've ever, where I've re ever read anything and said, yeah, that's the reason that that makes perfect sense. I've never read it. And I've never had one on my own. So uh, like I said, I'll stop talking because it's still, I don't know when I get done, but I do appreciate the question and it is a good one. And if somebody ever has an answer for me on it, please let me know because it would help me out. Uh, let's see what else we have. Um, Christine, Mark 1534. I don't know. Oh, we're, we're on the topic of, uh, did the father turn his face away? Mark, is that, was that where we are? 1534? Uh, sorry, the... The scroll goes chronologically, and so the comment section goes chronologically. So when I stop for 15 minutes and answer a question, y'all keep talking about it down on the bottom of the the bottom of the comment section, and I I have to go back up and catch up with you. Um, uh, but that's that that's Mark's account of my God, why have have you forsaken me? And I think we uh, we talked about that at some length. Um, Travis says about Mark 15:34, is it not possible for the translated 
passage should be translated, what kind of people ha have you given to me or to whom uh, have you left me? Man, Travis, you are on me today. I have never heard that. I, I have never heard that. It's I, I'm not a Greek scholar, and and I it just that's okay. Let me. Hey, Travis, you're two for two, man. I don't know. I have never heard that. Did you did you read that somewhere? Is there? If you could document that for me, I'd be interested in it. Uh, but I, I've all all the major translations translates it my trans translate it. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And usually, when all the major translations agree. Um, I, I'm thinking that there's a lot of Greek scholarship in the background there that is probably um, probably right. And I guess it could be a blind spot. It could be groupthink. But, I mean, when the translational committees of the King James, King James and then several hundred years later, the NIV and the New King James and the American Standard, New American, all, all of them translate a phrase the same way, I'm thinking they're probably probably right. But, I, I again, Travis, I don't, I don't know the answer to that. Um, I, that's one I have never even um, never even heard. Uh, what what does Second Corinthians five twenty one mean? Um, it, 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 and he became sin for us. Is, is the I believe that's the the verse that we're talking about there. Um, uh, it's it's an ellipsis when, when it says he became sin for us. Uh, it, it it it's a reference back to the Old Testament system. He became a sin offering for us. Uh, he was the propitiation for our sins. First John two Romans chapter three. But it's it's a it's a it's a look back a call back to the day of atonement, where you had the 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 two uh, the two um, um, animals uh, the the one was sacrificed actually more than two but one was sacrificed in the blood sprinkled upon the, the mercy seat inside the holy place most holy place and then there was the scapegoat uh, that the priest laid the sins on and took him without of the camp so it doesn't mean that he individually became a sinner because that's what it says and, and you know for. The way people read it is he became a sinner for us, which is not what the text says either. The text simply says he became sin. Well, he became the sin offering is, is, a, is a more readily acceptable, at least in my understanding, a more readily acceptable understanding of that phrase than he became a sinner for us. Uh, he did not become a sinner. Uh, he became sin. And that those, those are not the same things. Okay. Uh, that, that's my quick answer as it's two minutes to the top of the hour. Um, but um, that, that's where I would go with it. Um, let's see. Let's see where we are. Um, um, see where we go. I'm, I'm trying to catch up to y'all. Um, the shooting in Texas. How can we, people be expected to respect life when the murder of babies is allowed? That's that. That's a point I don't have time to address. But we have. We have, in my lifetime, we have certainly devalued uh, human life in, in any number of ways, from assisted suicide to abortion to uh, just the, the callousness with which we, we cast people away. Absolutely, we do, and that, that is true. Um, let's see where we are, talking more about uh, all of that. Um, got some conversations here about um, about, the, about whether or not you can record people without their information, without their um uh, knowledge, but just just if, if you're going to do something like that again, just make make sure it's legal. And I'm no I'm no legal expert. Just just I know that that, that is a consideration um, along along with it. Uh, Deborah says, "Good question, Travis. It could go along with what have you done in the garden? As now in the plan has to be put into play. What have you done? Sometimes we say when we have the consequences or about to be. I'm not sure. 
I guess that goes back to the first question about Mark or about Mark eight. Um, so I, I, but I'm not exactly sure of the thought I'm supposed to connect there. I'll have to think about that for a minute. Sorry, I'm just trying to rush through, rush through, through these here at the top of the hour and get done. Um, um, so here, here we go, Christine. This is the last one we'll get to. Jesus was both God and man. He lived a sinless life. It was through the fact that he was per perfect and lived a perfect life that he could die on the cross and offer the perfect sacrifice for sin. But in order for sin to become way, it has to come into contact with a cleansing agent. Just as when we wash our laundry, the soap must come in contact with the dirt uh, to take the dirt away. Uh, Jesus' blood had to come in contact with sin so it could wash sin away. Um, boy, y'all are just bringing me big stuff today. Um, don't have time really to, to, to unpack all of that, uh, Christine. Um, the short answer is we, we use the we use the concept of washing of sin away uh, because well, let's say biblical concept Acts twenty two sixteen Isaiah chapter one it's a biblical concept but those those are those are metaphors Th those are word pictures trying to you go you come you you you're baptized you wash the robes white and, and and that's imagery it's not the legal requirement and, and when we talk about jesus becoming a sin or becoming sin or a sin offering we're not dealing with a metaphor of cleansing we're actually dealing with the legal requirements of god the legality of what sin requires john romans 6 talks about the wages of sin is death there is, a, there is an exact price to be paid that has to be paid in order for anything to have the efficacy to wash away sin. Okay? So I think I think what you're doing here, and I, we, we'd have to talk more for me to understand it, and we just don't have time for that this morning. But my, my without getting further clarification from you, so if I'm wrong here, please forgive me. But I think what you're doing there is conflating the cause with the effect. Because the cause of sin being forgiven is the legal price being paid. God could not forgive sin until the legal price was paid. Obviously, now that brings in the whole sin in the Old Testament, but he knew that it was coming. So that's Romans 3. He declares his righteousness by the putting forth Jesus as the propitiation for our sins, for the, for the forbearance of the transgressions that are past. But what the Hebrews writer says, it's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sin because it does, it's not a sufficient price. So once the price is paid with the bodily death of Jesus, when the sin offering is slain, when the, when the lamb that is to be taken into the most holy place and the blood is, 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 is uh, slain and the blood is collected and, and, and sprinkled upon the mercy seat, then God can declare sin forgiven. The way that he declares sin being forgiven, being remitted, is to be baptized. So uh, it's, it's, it's a slight distinction there, but I think it's an important one to, to, to get. There is a legal requirement, and then you have the, the imagery which Scripture uses to help us understand the process. So... I'm, I'm talking here not about the, the, the metaphor, not, not about the imagery, but about the reality. A physical act had to occur. 
and the physical act was innocent blood, innocent life, an infinite innocent life, had to be killed in order to cover the sins of all of those who would ever sin. That is a legal action, right? And it, it, it's not a, it's, in that sense, it's not even a spiritual action. It is a physical action because death is the death that is promised from sin is I will kill you. Someone of sufficient quality, sinless, and, and sufficient uh, um, uh, efficacy, eternal, had to die to cover all of our sins, to, to allow the declaration of forgiveness. Now, when you get to the declaration of forgiveness, now we get into all the metaphors of washing and of cleansing. So that's as quick as I've got on it. Maybe if you want to, well, it's going to be six days. <laughs> if you can remember this, because I won't. If you can remember this, we'll come back and talk about it more on Tuesday, because that'd be a great topic to have some have some discussions on, okay? Um, so anyway, let me stop there, because I need to get to the second hour of the program. So uh, for those who may have got a really good crowd in here today, so for those who may not know exactly what we we do here, we do take a break here at the top of the hour. I just need to get my water cup filled up again and uh, just have a minute to collect my thoughts, and we will turn our attention to a textual study. We are currently studying the book of Jude. Uh, we're in our second lesson there. Got a couple things, a couple of more points to make by way of introduction, and then we'll actually get into the text of the book of Jude here in just a couple minutes. So sit tight, and uh, I will be right back with you in about, oh, three, four, five minutes.
Well, welcome back to uh, From the Deep End. Good to be back with you. Sorry for that little extended break there. Um, I'm having some issues with uh, with my audio, and and I my headset is battery operated, and it it just died on me right as we went to the break, and that messes up the the audio for the Podbean feed and some other things. So I was trying to um, trying to correct that, and hopefully I've gotten that fixed. And hopefully it will last for the remainder of the hour. Uh, yeah, y'all are. Uh, I'm changing different that that music that plays in between the, the top. Um, I have, let me say this: I've been having all kind of fits with music claims um, on on anything we do on digital Bible Bible study. Um, you can't use obviously just regular music because it's everybody's got a copyright on just about everything, right? Um, and uh, StreamYard, which is the platform you use, has this, this little background stuff. And I like to have something on when I turn on the thing and say, hey, we'll be on in a couple of minutes or during the break. I like to have something on just because if you happen to be scrolling through and you click on the video and all you have on the screen is the the, the splash screen that I use for the program, you're not you're not going to stay. You're not you don't know that the, you know, there's nothing moving on the screen. So I like there to be something. Uh, but I have been having all kind of fits with particularly on Facebook. With the, um, um, all kind of fits with, um, what am I trying to say? Sorry, the, the, the audio thing just messed up again and it got, I lost my train of thought, but I've been, I've been, I've been having all kind of fits with people claiming my videos. Uh, anything we do here on digital Bible study, um, which is they, they claim ownership of the video and they start start inserting their own material. Once they claim ownership of it, they can uh, insert anything they want to into the video that meets Facebook standards, and I don't have any control of it anymore. Well, they're doing it fraudulently, or at least in at least with I'm gonna say fraudulently. I think these people are doing it on purpose. Um, it's funny; they're all from Asia, from India. It's all foreign international. Facebook pages claiming it and and they're not supposed to because it's a public clip or at least it's it's a public domain clip for all you know it's it, it's a clip that all stream streamyard customers can use so I've got as much right to it as anybody else does and it always gets cleared up but I have every day after we get done I have to go through the process of submitting disputes and so on and so I'm just trying to uh, change maybe it's a, a different you know maybe one of these this other the company it's one it's one or two companies in particular and i've complained to facebook about it complained to Streamyard about it and i just get no resolution and i i just i have a, at least with at least with Streamyard, i can say i know this clip is available for me to use so i can use it um you know i, I suppose it would be better if i had some some hymns but even when i was doing the daybreak devotional i had all kind of fits on the hymns Stuff that theoretically should have been in the public domain, at least I always thought it was in the public domain. Somebody would claim ownership of it, and it's just a, it, it, it's, it's a great annoyance. So it's it's one, th one thing I haven't figured out a great way to do it, but that's what we got. That's what I use, and I like to have some kind of audio track going uh, so that people know the show hasn't been shut down. So that, that's what's going on there. Anyway, let's turn our attention now to the book of Jude. So we're already about 12 minutes in, so I need to hustle along if we're going to get uh, a good portion of this cover this morning. I do want to say one or two more things just by way of introduction. Um, we ended yesterday's program 
talking and talking about the introductory material, I was hanging out down here in about verse 17 or 18, because I do believe verse 17 and 18, well, I guess 19 as well, uh, and 20, I may just keep on going down at least 20, um, give you a pretty good indication of, um, of um, who the audience is and what, what the problem that is going on in the church at, uh, well, whatever churches Jude is writing to, I think they're Jewish churches. Um, but what's going on there? And the, the two thoughts that we have on the table, uh, the common thought when you read most commentaries, uh, particularly those that date uh, Jude after AD 70, which probably would be most, uh, be pretty good, pretty good uh, break in that in the books that I've read on it. But I would say on the whole, may, most would probably be after AD 70 in their uh, uh, dating of the book. I, I think it's pre-80-70. Um, but the two main thoughts that you'll come across, particularly with people who date the book later, the number, first one is Gnosticism. It's a Greek Gnosticism, a Greek doctrine, which um, relies on a, a, an enlightenment of knowledge um, and also has a, a clear distinction between flesh and spirit, with spirit being good and can be cultivated, flesh being evil, and the actions of the flesh do not necessarily uh, impact the body. Okay. The other view is, the view that I take, that primarily in this book is the um, uh, the um, uh, the group that's being argued against would be the Judaizers. I take that from the language there in verse 18 primarily, because I believe the last time to be the last time or the last hour um, prior to um, um, uh, the, the end of the age, so pre-80-70. And then as Peter would talk about the scoffers that would come in 2 Peter chapter 3, um, and then they follow their own ungodly passions, they cause divisions, and they're worldly people. Uh, we looked at that yesterday at some length about, about how Paul uses that same language to describe the Judaizers. And then they're also devoid of the Spirit. Uh, he uses that language in Romans 8-9 to describe them. He uses that language over in Galatians 3. If you want more information on that, just go back to yesterday's lesson. Or if you really want more information on that, Go back to the lessons we did on the book of Romans and camp in chapter eight because we are going to be, we were in chapter eight for uh, quite, a, quite a long time, okay? So I think they're Judaizers. Now, I wanted to make one last point about, about that concept before we move on. Because usually when people talk about Gnosticism versus uh, the Judaizers, it is as if they put those two different doctrines on different ends of the spectrum. Because the core of what we're told about Gnosticism, as we just read yesterday, let me let me go ahead and pull that back up from that commentary that we looked at uh, yesterday. Um, um, the incipient, this is from the, the, the Bible knowledge commentary, and he, he holds to the view that the primary enemy being addressed in uh, the book of Jude is, is the Gnostics. And so he says, the incipient Gnostics against whom Jude warned were denying the lordship of Jesus, and then particularly here, exercising sinful license, because they thought they could, giving in to their own sinful desires, because they thought they could, and so on. Here's the, the foundational reason for that. Why, were they, why did they believe they had license to sin? Okay, Gnosticism declared that the spirit was good and the material was evil. Therefore, spiritual was to be cultivated and fed with freedom to pursue its good inclination, inclination rather, 
In addition, Gnostics felt free to give vent to the desires of the flesh because the desires of the flesh would not impact the soul, right? So it is characterized as being a very licentious or open lifestyle. When people talk about the Judaizers, they talk about the, the, the pharisaical, the legalistic views of the Judaizers. And so you have a very progressive, permissive, Gnostical thinking, limited to those who are enlightened, but still there, you have a license to sin. And on the other end of the spectrum, you have, you have the uh, legalist, the Pharisees, if you will, of the church. And these, we're told, are on separate ends of that spectrum. They're separated from one another. They're far apart from each other. And I don't think so. I don't think so at all. See, I believe that the, the, the quote-unquote spiritual children of the Judaizers, they are the Gnostics. They are the same person. Just you, you substitute Jewish um, um, homogeny for Greek homogeny. That's what you're doing. It's not a spectrum. It's a circle. And the title of that circle is the elemental spirit of the world. The elemental spirit of the world. Because that's what you have in the book of Galatians. You have Jews and Gentiles both living under two different legal systems. The Gentiles living under the legal system of the, of the pagans and the, uh, uh, the Jews living under the legal system of the Judaizers or the Pharisees using the law as the means to enforce that. What is the key feature, the key feature of the Gnostic? Well, it's in the name, knowledge, gnosis. They rely on their knowledge of spiritual things, of secret things, that other Christians, other people could not have and needed to come to them to get access to. That's that's the foundation of it at all. Okay, what about the Pharisees? Matthew 23, they sit in the seat of Moses. Quite literally, they had the, the chief seats in the synagogues. They had the chief, the chief seats everywhere. They were that, and, 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 and you had to come to them. You want to hear the, the law of Moses um, uh, interpreted for you? You got to come through us. And when you read the language of Paul in Galatians describing the work of the Judaizers in the church, that's exactly what they do. They exclude you so that you may make, make much of them. They make a fair show of you in the flesh and all those phrases that we looked at as we were studying through the book of Romans together. Foundationally, I believe these things are conceptually rather. I believe these two, two, two doctrines both operate under exactly the same premise. I don't think the Judaizer and the and the uh, the Gnostic are that far apart conceptually. They're both totalitarian. And when you get, you know, we talk about the spectrum of the left, the spectrum of the right, at the very end of either spectrum is totalitarianism. You've seen it here in, in 
in, in modern times. It is it, it, the farther left you went on the spectrum during all of the stuff we've gone through the last couple of years, the more draconian somebody wanted government to be in terms of controlling people's actions and locking things down and so on and so forth. Okay, you go to the far right of the traditional political spectrum and you end up with uh, 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 religious fundamentalism that tries on some level to impose a form of theocracy. And we've done that in our country. We try to turn our country into um, uh, a, 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 a theocracy on some level. Um, and other, other places have as well. But we, we by legislation, try to enforce certain um, uh, uh, religious principles. Okay, I'm not, and I'm not trying to get into a political discussion here, but the, the impulse of both ends of the spectrum, neither of them is just let people go along and get along. On either end of the spectrum, one, because they think they have the, 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 uh, uh, the blessing of God, the other, because they think they have the, the, the blessing of intellectual supremacy, both turn out to be authoritarian, maybe even totalitarian. The ends of the spectrum are closer together than the middle is. It's actually some kind of a, a circle. It's just a matter of where you get your authority. Okay, That's the same things with the Gnostics and the Judaizers. Both parties sought to gain complete and utter control over the church, and they used the same tactics to get there. I don't think there's a lot of difference in them. So I say all that to say this. Oh, let, let me add this too, because I just saw the... the um, um, uh, the, the question, the, the statement, rather, a question that Christine just put up. Could you say Gnostics would be immoral tendencies on any side? We need to be followers of Christ. Um, I don't know if I said it would be Gnostic on any side. I will say this. That is Paul's point about, about the, uh, we, we use the passage a lot in Colossians chapter 2, that people would submit to regulations because they have an appearance of wisdom in he says the um, um, in um, mm, they indeed have an appearance of wisdom in a self-made religion, asceticism and severity to the body. In other words, if you want to stop the indulgences of the flesh, if you want to stop immorality, just submit to the regulations according to human traditions. Go down that 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 Pharisaical path, and it will stop them. Paul's point is no, that won't stop them. Indeed, the works of the flesh are evident. When you try to work the flesh and to conform the flesh through submitting to regulations, the works of the flesh are evident. And we looked at that yesterday. It leads to sensuality and rivalries and divisions and sexual immorality, all the things that Jude talks about here in Jude verses 17 through 20. So it leads to the same thing. Now, what did Gnostic doctrine lead to? Exactly the same thing. See, it's the elemental principle of the world. You're enslaved to the elemental principles of the world. There's literally no difference in the in the conception of these two uh, um, uh, of these two paths. It is both a human tradition, human reliant upon the the proclamation of of of, of elite supreme understanding of spiritual matters that lead, then leads to a, a a codified life of 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 the submission to uh, a regulatory system. Now, the regulatory system may be different, and I'm not saying the regulatory system of the Gnostic and the regulatory system of the Pharisees are the same. No, I'm saying conceptually, what you think you need to do in order to be to be holy, they have the same thought, and their thought is again authoritarianism. 
because that's what happens once you dethrone God from his throne, some power is, is going to come into play. Now, I say all that to say this. This discussion about that we just had for the last hour and a half of the two days of the program about whether it's Gnostics, Gnosticism, or Judaism, I don't know that it really changes the application of the book any. Because we're dealing here with the same fault. And while I think the book of Jude is dealing with first century matters, leading to or dealing with times of the Great Tribulation, leading up to the fall of Jerusalem, and so on, um, it is... Um, um, it, it, the, 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 the principles here still have, a, a I do believe, a universal application because what has not gone away is the elemental principle of the world. The one thing that has not changed from the time of Paul till now, and even before that because Paul the time of Paul didn't originate this, it is that elemental principle of the world. Whatever philosophical system someone devises that comes out of let me just say it comes out of human wisdom is going to be bound to what Paul refers to as that elemental principle of the world. They all operate exactly the same. Different specifics, but conceptually, they're all going to be the same because they reject the authority of God. And you, when, you, when you reject the authority of the supreme being, all you're left with then is some form of transitory authority that is going to be made in the image of those who created it, which is man. It's going to be made out of the elemental uh, principles, the elemental, well, let me say it this way, it's going to be made of the elements of the world. And I don't mean by that carbon and, you know, iron and gold. I mean, the, 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 what we have in the world to make it. That, that's what it's going to be made out of, because that's all we have. Once you remove God, all you have is the material. And so you're going to form your systems. They may look different. You know, it's like you may take a lump of dirt, and, and make one thing, I'm going to make a, take a lump of dirt and make something that looks different, but guess what? They're both dirt, because that's all we have to work with is dirt. So once you remove God from the equation, every other system is going to be built upon the elemental principle of the world, and, and, and because all we have is dirt. It's spiritual. I mean, if you're talking spiritually, you're not actually little dirt. We're talking, you know, it's a metaphor, right? That's all we have, and that, that's all you have. All the systems are going to be the same. All the systems are going to be the same because that's all we've got is dirt. Okay, so that's my point. All right. Um, one last thing. Let's back here. I'm going to go back to this commentary one more time because he does a good job of pointing out something. Where is it? Just a. Um, uh, is it this one? Yeah. Um, or just a neat feature. I don't know. Not really do anything on this, but um, in 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 the book of Jude, um, his use of metaphor, his use of um, of of uh, figures of speech is just for such a short book. It is slam packed with them. And one feature that commentators have noted, and, and I'll follow follow along here with it, is is the structure where he he speaks in in triplicate. He speaks in in in, in triads, as this commentator calls it. Um, so like he's a Jude servant brother, gives three addresses to him in verse, and he's to those he's addressed. He says, to those that are called, loved, and kept. His greeting, mercy, peace, and love. Okay, describing the, the, uh, the apostate men, godless men, change the grace of our Lord, deny Jesus. When he gets to, to those who are the apostates, he uses three metaphors to describe them. The people out of Egypt, the angels, the, the Sodom and Gomorrah, and so on. And, and, and on and on down through here. Um, 
there are, I think he, I think he actually gives a count at some point in here. Um, I don't know. There's a, there, there, that, that triplet thought happens over and over and over again in, in the book of Jude. So just keep your eye out for it. I don't know that it makes any doctrinal difference in the book. It's just the writing style of Jude. It's very, it's, it makes it very punchy. It, it, it's because, you know, it's just that, that, that repetition, that rep repeated uh, emphasis on a thought um, is, is, is just attention grabbing throughout the book. And the urgency that he writes the book for, he says, I found it necessary to write what I'm writing to you because of the current conditions. And so this is a very tightly packed book. Uh, there's not a lot of, um, of, of, of divergence from his point. And then, well, it shouldn't be because it's a really short book, but there's not. Okay, It's a very tightly constructed uh, 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 letter to the churches. All right. Finally, 30 minutes ago, let's get into um, our examination of, of, uh, of the book of Jude here for just a, a few minutes in the time that remains. Um, Jude, we already talked about who Jude is, uh, probably the brother of the Lord, brother James, half-brother half of, 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 of Jesus, the brother of James, a servant of, of, of Jesus Christ, um, refers to him at himself as a as a servant that is the the stronger word there it's doulos it's the the bond servant uh, paul uses that phrase often to describe himself of jesus christ and then the brother of james um i'm assuming james is the um more prominent of the two and that's why he um uh makes that connection so that everybody knows exactly who he is uh in the rest of the text the rest of the bible james is obviously much more prominent he's much more prominent in the book of acts obviously from the book that he wrote, the book of James, uh, and then also the um, um, uh, incident in Antioch is, is mentioned in Galatians 2. Um, and so he makes the connection to identify himself. We talked yesterday about why he refers to himself as the servant of Jesus Christ as opposed to the brother of Jesus Christ. Um, no reason, uh, I mean, if you call yourself the brother of Jesus, that's going to be that's going to sound a little bit self-serving. So it, 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 this, this would just then be, Hopefully, a, a statement of recognition of his place before uh, Jesus, but also probably a, a touch of hopefully humil humility in that, uh, not wanting to um, uh, proclaim that more strongly than perhaps that he should. Um, to those who are called, beloved in the Father God and kept for Jesus Christ. Okay, so they are called, and here's one of our triplets: beloved, called, beloved, and kept. Um, in Romans 8, 28, I told you that those who are called according to his purpose um, were Jews. Um, there are other passages where the, the phrase called does not seem to apply directly to uh, to Jewish individuals. Uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we talked about that. Oh, some, was it, when did we do that? We talked about sanctification of the Spirit when we were studying through Romans chapter uh, 15. Um, those who were called called uh, according to the gospel, 2 Thessalonians 2, is at 2.14. Um, I do think the, call, the phrase called here can go outside of Jews. I'm not sure, though, uh, in this phrase, in this instance, that it does. I think he might just be referring to, to his Jewish brethren here, but I'm willing to listen to others on that as well. Uh, they are beloved in God um, and beloved um, both in and, and by God, but they're, they're beloved in the Father. Um, and so that shows the relationship that is there. Uh, and then they are kept uh, for for Jesus Christ. Um, is this the one I'm looking for? Uh, yeah, the, 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 
the preposition there can also be translated by. I was thinking, I, thinking, I was thinking that was what I remembered there. Uh, so either kept for or kept by, both would be true um, for Jesus Christ. So they are beloved, uh, they are called, and they are kept. So they have been um, uh, invited to the special relationship. They have been placed into a special relationship of love with the Father. He, they, are, they serve, if you will, to use the Old Testament language as the apple of the eye. Uh, it is not just a, a matter of, you know, we talked in the first hour about there being a legal requirement for, for, for redemption and all of that. Behind the legal requirement for, for, for that and the fulfilling of the legal requirement is that God actually does love his people. Uh, and so they are beloved in God, and then they are kept, they are protected, both for and by, whichever way you care to translate that, uh, by Jesus Christ. So you have um, two of the three members of the Godhead mentioned. Obviously, we will talk about the Spirit later on in this book, but you have the connection there, and it is a it is a strong one. Uh, may peace, mercy, and love, there's another one of our triplets, may peace, love, and mercy uh, be um, uh, multiplied to you. Um, and st fairly standard greeting. Um, you know, mercy being the, the removal of um, uh, d deserved punishments. Um, it precedes grace. Without, without, without mercy, there is no time for grace because mercy demand, the, the, in the, when mercy is not present, judgment is executed. Uh, the difference between mercy and grace is that mercy uh, holds, holds, uh, holds back a, a coming punishment. Grace offers a gift to, to supplant the coming punishment. So it replaces it. Mercy holds it back. Grace replaces it with a blessing. In that, and that's the difference here. When you have mercy, then you have the opportunity to have peace. And now, of course, being the beloved in God, you have the love of God uh, and then the love of the saints as well being multiplied to you. So standard greeting for um, a lot of these books, very, very traditional um, uh, approach to it. So on to the actual meat of the text once we get into it. So beloved, he's already referred to them beloved once. He has them again, beloved. Uh, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation. Common salvation, all right? Uh, I don't think there's anything particularly earth-shattering here about this phrase. Um, you know, I'm always predisposed to try and find something relating to either the Jews or the Gentiles or something like that. Um, I do that a lot. Uh, I don't know that there's anything here. Obviously, it is common between Jew and Gentile. Uh, Peter refers to the same thought. And again, a lot of, a lot of similarity between Peter and Jude. Uh, Peter refers to a like precious faith. And, and I believe that's all that we have here. We have a common salvation. Uh, and that is, you know, he says, I wanted to write to you about that. And that's kind of where he starts. You're called, beloved, you're kept. There's your common salvation. Called, kept, called, called beloved, and kept. And you, beloved, I was wanting to write to you and expound upon that, uh, the common salvation that we all partake in. Um, now, if I were going to make any significance about that, it might actually be in what follows. Because on some level, he changes topics. I mean, he does change topics. That's what he says. I wanted to write this, but now I have to write, I wanted to write that rather. Now I have to write this. And what I have to write to you about is to contend for the faith once delivered for the saints. Okay. But if you're once, if that faith has once for all been delivered to the saints, it's delivered then to all the saints. And what you're actually then talking about is the common salvation. So it appears that maybe he wanted to write about the common salvation. He's instead instead is going to have to write about defending the common salvation. 
um, but not a bad way to start by way of of, of um, remembrance uh, by way of setting the tone is because the reason we need to contend for the faith is because it is that faith that produces the common salvation. Um, I always like Paul's um, um, appeal to the Philippians in that regard. Is it Philippians 1.27, I believe? Let me turn over there. Um, Paul to the Philippians says, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So there is the the faith that we're talking about, right? The faith, the gospel. We're gonna when we get there, we're gonna make that point um, together. We're gonna draw those two thoughts together, so that whether I come to see you or, or or am absent, that's what he's been talking about through chapter one. I'm trying to get there. I may be released. I may not. I'll get there, or you know that kind of conversation. He says, I want to hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit. I love I love the the specificity here, that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, one spirit and one mind, and you strive together. So there's one work, one spirit, one mind, one work for the the one faith, the faith that comes from the gospel. All right. There aren't many, there aren't different faiths that come from the gospel. The gospel produces one faith. That one faith should cause us to have one mind or one spirit and one mind together. So there is your common salvation. Then the con- the connection between the faith and the common salvation, you know, in your margin of, of Jude of Jude right there, just write Philippians 127. Because there's a connection. I want to write about the common salvation. I want to or want to write to you about the one mind, about the one spirit that we all share by being beloved in God and kept for Jesus Christ or kept by Jesus. I wanted to write to you about that. But instead, what I'm actually going to do is I'm going to write to you about the basis of that. And the basis of that is the gospel and the faith that comes from the gospel. There's The, the gospel cannot be interpreted multiple ways. There's one message from the gospel. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. The faith, not your own personal faith, not the personal scruples of Romans 14, but the revelatory faith, the sound doctrine, the sound words of God. The gospel produces the faith. If, if your faith is wrong on those matters, it's because you have some, in, some, in some way misapplied the gospel. So the faith comes directly from the gospel, all right? Now, actually in Jude, though, I think when he refers to the faith in a moment, he's probably actually referring to the content of the gospel, which produces the faith that we just talked about in Philippians. But th- these concepts, in that, in that sense, these concepts are inseparable. If you change the facts of the gospel, you would change the faith of the gospel. If you misapply, misunderstand, misappropriate the fact of the gospel or the facts of the gospel, you would change the faith and pervert it into something that is no longer the gospel or the faith. So they are inseparable. Faith comes from the hearing of the facts of God's word. It's something that needs to be learned and applied, all right? And that's why you need to contend for it. We'll say more about that in just a second because the content of what's in the gospel matters. So he says, I wanted to write to you about this common salvation. Common salvation, just as we talked about Philippians 1, 27, uh, and, and other places as well. He says, I found it necessary to write appealing you to, to you. All right? So I'm going to write to appeal to you to contend for the faith. We'll get there momentarily. But I found it necessary. So the conditions on the ground, wherever Jude is delivering this book to or where the book will be delivered to, he says, I found it necessary 
because of the, the events that we see. And what is what is it the event what events are we about to see? Well, the events that we are about to see are of course everything relating to um um the the scoffers and the false teachers that are about to come into the church or have already come into the church. Uh interesting in the, in this book, he kind of writes it in both ways. He writes about about those people who are coming in. He writes about those people that are in, and he actually writes at the end of the, later in the book that these people have already been destroyed, as if it's already happened. So it's an interesting um, uh, verb tense usage and shifting throughout the book, and we'll try to highlight that as we go through it. But he says the, these events are unfolding now. You need to remember at the end of the at the end of the book of Jude, you need to remember the the predictions that made by the apostles. You shouldn't think this to be strange. Peter says that the fiery trials come, the fiery trial has come upon you. Don't think that to be strange because we, you were told about it. Um, obviously, we went to Matthew 24 yesterday. That's one place you were told about it. But the concept that that these persecutions, these tribulations would come, all found all through the ministry of Jesus and in the, the early writings of the apostles as well. Don't think it's strange that this has happened. All right. And so it's risen now to the point in Jude's in Jude's time that it's necessary to write to defend these things. So it's another reason I think we're right right near the end of the uh, the time leading up to, to the destruction of Jerusalem. Uh, times had grown worse and worse, and Jude is urgently writing to address some of the situation that's on the ground, which might cause people to lose their faith. Now, he says it's necessary um, to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. So let's just stop right there. We need to contend for the faith. Um, that is a a phrase that is not um, especially beloved by some. Uh, certainly not a phrase that when you actually apply it is especially beloved by some. The word for here to contend for the faith, I think it's interesting. Does the uh, ESV translate it that way? Um, let me sc scroll down. Um, yeah, ESV does translate it that way. Um Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses. Okay, how, how do you think that conversation went between Michael, the archangel, and the devil? You think that was think that was a pleasant conversation? Probably not. Probably not. Uh, they were disputing about the body of Moses. Okay. Um, Hmm. What's it mean to contend for the faith? Well, you have to start with the acknowledgement that the faith is a thing. You have to start there. You have to start with the objectivity of the faith. If you don't believe in objective faith based upon objective revelation, then you're not going to believe properly that the faith can be contended for. We live in a very relative relativistic society, um, and everybody has their own truth, and their own faith. You can't contend for the faith if it's all in the eye of the beholder. There has to be an understanding that there is an objective, fixed set of truth, set of facts that compose the faith that are not mine or not yours. They are common to every person who is a Christian. These things which are 
commonly believed among us. Okay, that's that's what we're after. The faith is something that is common. Now, what does it mean to contend for that faith? Uh, I mean, you look up the Greek word if you want to. Guess what the Greek word means? It means contend. There is a there is a a battle. Another form of the word contend is contentious. I think this is just just just, just, just Jonathan talking right here. Jonathan one hundred one once again. But I think one of the greatest problems we have in, in, in the church today, and even more broadly in, in what, what, people, what people consider to be Christendom today, is that Christians are not real good at identifying their enemies. We've got a lot of, let me talk about preachers. We've got a lot of preachers who wouldn't contend with somebody to, to, to save their souls. They just don't. The only thing they ever do is um, uh, criticize, you know, other gospel preachers or other other Christians when those people actually do contend for something. Um, when something's evil, we need to be willing to call it evil. And and, and we don't, you know, being winsome is not our uh, not our goal. Now, being ugly isn't either. I get that. I get that. But I don't think we're that, that, that's the problem that has plagued churches. We've sat by and, and allowed a lot of stuff inside churches and outside of churches just to, to slide on by us. And we never stood up and contended for the faith. We didn't take our enemies seriously because we didn't want to consider them enemies. There are enemies of the cross, and there are enemies of the cross in the world. And in order to contend for the faith, that means you have to, on some level, you have to meet the arguments of those who are trying to to distort or to pervert the uh, to pervert pervert the faith? Interestingly, in the book of Jude, this is not an outward looking event. Certain people have crept in unnoticed. This contention dealt with the world. This contention is inward looking. There are false teachers who have crept in among us. And what they're doing is they are perverting the grace of our God and changing the doctrine, changing our actions, causing later on divisions. A lot of our time, there needs to be a defense of the faith, a contending for the faith inside the body of Christ. We would be a lot stronger if we would stand up more inside the church. Now, I will say this as well. We would do a lot better contending for the faith if we would spend more time building the positive case than simply responding to the negative. This is this is a little bit of sermonizing here. This is not really about the book of Jude. I need to go back and put this phrase more properly in its context here in a moment, but let me sermonize here for a moment. I have noticed, well, pretty much all through my the time in my ministry, 30 years now, but especially within the last 
handful, three or four years. When I came on the scene and I started preaching and, and being trained to do all of that, we spent a lot of time teaching basic restoration principles, restoration movement stuff. Um, well, I'm about to sermonize a whole lot. Okay. I'm about to sermonize a bit. Hold on, because I, I feel it coming on. We spend a lot of time doing restoration-type preaching. Restoration-type preaching is typically topical. Uh, you'd go to a gospel meeting. You'd put up the uh, the 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 old old school preachers would put up that bed sheet behind the pulpit back before everybody had projectors and PowerPoint or uh, yeah PowerPoint or even some overhead projectors. You know the old sheet sermons you used to see. Those sheet sermons sheet sermons say that three times fast were almost always topical. It was about the church. It was about the marks of the church. It was about, you, you've seen them, right? Plan of salvation, um, five acts of worship, organization of the church, all, all of those fundamental things, all right? We stopped doing that. We, we have been, and, and we and also the more broadly the religious world, has been emphasizing expository preaching almost exclusively during the time that I have been engaged in ministry. And that, that's like I said, I started training in 92. Um, that would, that movement, that push toward expository preaching goes back even into the, probably into the seventies or mid eighties, at least before it was really became prominent. John MacArthur being one of the big proponents, early proponents of it um, of, in, in, in evangelical circles. Um, I love expository preaching. I default my default switch is expository preaching. But I have noticed that progressives look toward topical preaching with disdain. And I believe this is the reason. I really think this is part of the reason. I think part of the reason they do that is because it's hard to preach the five acts of worship in an expository sermon. It's hard to preach the characteristics of the work of the Holy Spirit in an expository sermon. It's hard to preach <clears throat> the plan of salvation fully in a single expository sermon. It's hard to preach fully the role of women in the church in an expository sermon. You think about how many restoration-type principles it's very hard to do from a single text. And we don't do that kind of preaching anymore. So often in our pulpits, we have, we have bought into this view that every sermon needs to be at least a quasi-expository sermon, and the old gospel meeting restoration-style type preaching has gone away. You remember, if y'all were here for um, Ben Phillips, Monday night on Connect, that was an old-style preaching about why membership in the church is important. It was completely topical. And it was poignant. It was punchy. And it was, on some level, unanswerable in terms of trying to, 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 to uh, um, um, 
um, uh, deny the importance of membership in the local church. If you haven't seen Ben's lesson, you need to go back and watch it. It's, it's right on point with what I'm talking about right now. Ben's sermon contended, contended for the faith on that issue about whether or not you need to be a part of a local church. There is not a single argument or a single text that you could go to and preach it in an, in, in an expository manner that would, have, that would have had the same power and the same force as what Ben did on Monday night. It had to be done that way. All right? We have changed the way we preach. And in large part, what we have done in so doing is we have stopped delivering the lessons that allow us to do this in a single lesson. We don't do enough of the old style preaching that, that, that when the church was as strong as it was and as pure, at least within our collective lifetimes, as it's been doctrinally, is when the guys that came out of Fried Hardeman and other schools in the mid-20th century, the guys that graduated from, the, from, our, from our universities and some of our schools are preaching in the 50s and 60s, that did, if you ever heard the old Johnny, if you ever heard Johnny Ramsey preach, if you didn't, you're missing something. I'm sure he's got some lessons somewhere. That fellow would go to 300 different less, 300 different passages in one sermon. I mean, that that style of preaching, where, where where the full force of all of the verses on God's God's um, uh, message were put together. Man, um, we don't do that anymore, and because of that, our people don't know the basic facts of the of of, of the gospel. They don't know them, and they can't defend them. They might know they might have a better understanding of texts, but they don't have a better understanding of the concepts of the Bible. And because we don't, because we are no longer building the positive case, what I have noticed to bring back to the thought that y'all thought I had forgotten about, over the last three or four years, especially, and maybe this is confirmation bias, maybe this is just me my seeing things that that need to be seen elsewhere as well as well. But at least in my circles, what I've been seeing for the last handful of years is the only people talking topically about the church are the people who tell us we can't talk topically about the church. The progressives say when you pre preach topically, you end up proof texting and pulling verses out of context. So you must preach expositorily. And we've bought into it. So that's all the way we preach anymore. All right? Guess what they do? They have been point by point, topically, looking at each element, each part of the institution of the church, its leadership, its doctrine, its worship, and so on. They have been going point by point and trying to tear down the institutions of the church. And we haven't responded in turn. They're building their case, and we're not, until, until they start to impact our churches and then we have to come and build the negative case. We need to do a better job of contending for the faith on the positive sense. There are things that need to be indoctrinated in, particularly into our young people. They can only be done by that old style, here are five truths you need to know about the organization of the church, and so on. That style of preaching, we need to do more of it. And we would do a, we would be more, in my opinion, we would be more successful at contending for the faith if we did a better job 
of building the positive case on our end. Okay? Now, that's my sermon over for the day. Let me get back here to Jude for a minute. I'm about to run out of time, and this is probably going to work out pretty well on time. All right? Um, to contend for the faith which was once delivered for the saints. We'll talk about that starting on Tuesday, the idea of it being once delivered for the saints. And by the way, I, I still think we'll probably finish this thing up on uh, on Tuesday because once we get into this, unless I just, it may, maybe Wednesday. Um, it, it's not, once we get into it, unless I start going through all those Old Testament references, once we get into the metaphors, it, it flows pretty quickly. Um, but we'll see. Um what we do have here that needs to be contended for is there is a very particular doctrine. This is where it gets into what are you talking about? Are you talking about the Judaizers or are you talking about the Gnostics? I think we're talking about the Judaizers. All right. There is a there is a, a commonality in these people that are coming in. I don't believe he's talking here about just general false doctrine, the creep of, uh, of progressivism through time. I don't think he's talking about the, the corrupting influence of an evil world around us. He, I believe he's looking at a very specific group of people that have their agenda that they have come into and are trying or brought into the church rather, and are trying to make a very specific change in the church. Um, and that, I get that from, from a lot of things, but particularly as, as, as you talk about here, these people, these are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires, loud mouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. They have a, a very specific agenda that they're trying to impose upon the church. And as, as, as again, as I said, I do believe that agenda is tied to uh, tied to the Judaizers. So when he tells for them to contend for the faith, he is he he has a very specific point that needs to be uh, uh, defended, and it is going to be about the nature of the uh, nature of the uh, of the gospel. Just as we spent the time in the Book of Romans, I don't believe that I don't believe the uh, the uh, the topic is um, is um, uh, a changed at all. So anyway, got time for me to wrap this up. Um, um, let's see what we have here. Uh, if anything in the comment section, I need to get to, um, well, Trish, you're heading to the eye doctor today. Well, we'll keep you in our prayers. Um, uh, Ooh, conditions that are, uh, hereditary in my family and I may be facing diagnosis for one of these. We will absolutely keep you in our prayers, uh, Trish. And hopefully I can remember to add that to the prayer list on Thursday night as well. If somebody helped me remember that, that would be great. Um, and, uh, just some talk back and forth. Christine, were you on? Did you did you use the gospel? Man, I forgot about the go, uh, uh, the gospel call. Wow. Um, if you're talking about the same thing I'm talking about, we need to talk. Bring that up. Bring that up sometime in in the first hour of the program because we're talking about the same thing. I hadn't thought about that in years. Uh, but I don't have time to go into it right now because we're at the top of the hour. If you remember that on Tuesday. Bring that up in the first hour. Let's talk about it because that, if yeah, if we're talking about the same thing, that was an interesting, interesting working concept that one of the churches I was involved in uh, participated in it for a long time. Um, I think that's that's about it. Um, so I'll go ahead and stop it today. We will pick up Lord willing here on Tuesday. Sorry for the long break, but uh, I won't hate it myself. I have a few days off, but uh, I will see you back here. Uh, for the next episode of uh, From the Deep End on Tuesday, and that will be uh, Tuesday, May 31st will be the next time that we are back together. So I will see you back then. Uh, Labeth Brewer coming up this afternoon at 2 o'clock, so don't don't forget to catch her, her show. And I think that will do us. So I'll sign off today and say go out and have a good day, everybody, and make your day a great one for God. We'll be back here 
Uh, well, I won't be. I was about to say I'd be back here tomorrow, but I'm not. I just told you I wasn't. But I'll be back here when I'm back here. How about that? See, see you all later on. Have a good day, everybody.